Well, this morning, as I mentioned before, earlier, we are looking at the great love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, if you've uh, ever been to a Christian wedding here in Australia, there is an extremely, extremely high chance that you have heard this chapter read at that wedding. Uh, if you were at uh, Robin's and my wedding, you would have heard it, uh, though none of you were at our wedding. So I apologize for not inviting you. And kids, and those of you who are yet to be married, um, please hear my plea. If the Lord blesses you with a spouse in the future, please do not have this chapter read at your wedding. Now look, I'm not, I'm not going to stop you. I'm not going to stop you from doing that if you'd like to. Uh, because, you, you know, it's not like 1 Corinthians 13 does not apply to marriages. It does. It certainly does apply to marriages. If, if you are getting married to somebody, you want to make sure that you love them. And this is a good place to go to figure out what love actually is. But to remind you of the context of chapters 12, 13, and 14, Paul is specifically addressing the matter of spiritual gifts in the church. That is the context of 1 Corinthians 13. And this chapter is not just a part of what he has to say about the spiritual gifts. This chapter is central to the whole topic. And it's central not just because it's the, set, the chapter that's in the center of this section. It's central because it is key to everything he has to say about spiritual gifts. And we saw over the last couple of weeks that Paul's main emphasis when it comes to the spiritual gifts is that they be used for the common good, that they be used for the good, the building up of the body. And so it's pretty clear that one of the problems Paul was, was facing in the Corinthian church was that they were prizing certain gifts over others, and in particular, the gift of tongues. And so Paul reminded them that they are all members of the one body, many members, one body, and that they ought not to prize certain gifts over others, even if some are of more use in building up the body than others. Spiritual gifts, he reminds them, and as we saw in the last couple of weeks, they are not for personal gain, but they are for the common good. And so already the trajectory of chapter 12 leads so nicely into what Paul has to say here in 1 Corinthians 13. The chapter is just so clearly a core part of the whole topic. Now I say this because sometimes readers of the Bible think that perhaps this chapter was, was actually added onto the letter later and was not part of the original. And as I noted before, sometimes we also treat this chapter as though it stands on its own, as though Paul, you know, was talking about spiritual gifts in the body of Christ, and then suddenly he just decided to take a nice wide excursus into this abstract topic of love, as though it was unrelated. Well, as I said, and as we'll see, you, you can apply this chapter generally, and even a few steps down the road, the track to marriage, but we must must ensure that we seek to understand it and seek to grasp it primarily the way God and His human author in the Apostle Paul intended. And that is in this context of the exercise of spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. That is what this chapter is all about. And so with that, let's hear our passages for this morning. Uh, my 1 Corinthians 13 wife will read them for us. 
suitable, isn't it? <laughs> the first passage is from Matthew 22, uh, verses 34 to 40. There's some blue Bibles on the seats. You're welcome to use those. And if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that home. It's on page 483 there. So Matthew 22 from verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The second reading is from 1 Corinthians, chapter 12, 31b, uh, right through to the whole chapter 13. And it's on page 559. And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Thank you, my love. Let me just pray for us as we dive into this. Our Heavenly Father, give us open ears, open hearts, as we uh, hear your word this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. How are you going at obeying Jesus' second greatest command? Robin just read it for us in Matthew 22. Jesus is asked by a lawyer, which is the greatest, which is the greatest commandment, and he replies in verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. But then he goes on to expand, and a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then, as uh, the whole section tells us, all of the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. 
So if love is so important to God and so important to living a life of obedience to Him, it is surely of great importance for us to know what that actually means. You see, many people today, they claim to love. They claim to love as God loves. But if such claims are made with a definition of love that doesn't come out of God Himself and His revealed Word, then is it truly love? Is that true love? So we come to the great love chapter in the Bible. It's so significant that Paul introduces it by saying, I will show you a still more excellent way. You see, here Paul is echoing Jesus' teaching in Matthew 22. In this whole chapter, love is of the greatest importance, the most excellent way. And as I mentioned before, this chapter applies love in the context of the local church, especially in connection to the way that we exercise spiritual gifts. But I read out Matthew 22 because the great love chapter, it also speaks to the core of the Christian faith. Paul applying Christian love here is, a, is in a specific context that is a subcategory of the broader command of Matthew 22. So as we work our way through it this morning, we'll be considering how it applies to us both generally and also both specifically in this context. And because love is so essential to the Christian faith, we want to do well at this chapter and sing, I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. Right? Like, look, I, I want you to, looking at the, the Bible, not me. As we sing that. Kids, do any of you actually know that song? Yeah, it's way too old. T 20s? Do any of you guys know? <laughs> All right, <laughs> good. You know, and on that note, actually, because love is everywhere in our culture, uh, you know, and songs, uh, 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 I'll leave it up to you to try and stop yourself from just being distracted by the many songs that will come to mind as we work our way through this chapter. And because it's, it's so everywhere, it's so part of our culture, it is all the more important for us as followers of Christ to ensure that we let the Bible instruct us on what love is. You see, to fail to love as God intends us to love is to fail to love. And one of the most significant things God wants us to grasp in this chapter is not just what love is, but what love does. As several artists have put, put into song, love is indeed a verb. And that will be reflected in our three headings over the three main sections of this chapter this morning. Love lifts, love loves, and love lasts. Love lifts, love loves, and love lasts. Let's begin with the first as we open our heads and hearts and Bibles asking God to show us what love is. And to give you a heads up, the second section will be the longest. So first, love lifts, love lifts. Uh, and all the lad and lady lifters said, amen. Amen. In love, I lift my weights. And you know what? Actually, uh, it's a pretty good image. If you lifted your weights above your head, let's say you had like 200 kilos on a, or whatever, something that's really heavy, on a bar, and you lifted it up and put it above your head and then ceased to lift in that moment the result would be very bad. It would be very bad for you. 
You might even cease to be and become nothing. And that's Paul's point. Paul's point in this first section is that love is what lifts up the spiritual gifts. Without love, the spiritual gifts are nothing. Let's read from verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Here's our first clue that Paul is still talking about spiritual gifts. All of these examples, except for maybe delivering up his body to be burned, are all in his spiritual gifts lists that he has put in chapter 12. And what does he say? What does he have to say about all of them? They are useless without love. As a matter of fact, they are worse than useless. Paul does not pull punches when he says that to have these incredible gifts, but to have not love is to be nothing. And it makes sense, doesn't it? If the two greatest commands depend on love, then it does not matter how well you obey the rest of them. This was at the core of Jesus' very critique of the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day. They were so meticulous about obeying the letter of the law that they had lost the heart of it. They appeared to be uh, outwardly righteous, but they were dead on the inside, full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. What else could cause that but an absence of godly love. And Paul begins with this the very issue that the Corinthians were obsessed with speaking in tongues. Many read the uh, the tongues of angels here to refer to what the Corinthians thought was a so-called language of heaven. Hence it is a language that is spoken directly by the spirit in words that don't make any human sense. Now, if you've known or heard somebody who professes to speak in tongues today, that is the kind of speech that they think this verse is referring to. Others who believe the gifts of tongues uh, have ceased, they think that Paul is being hyperbolic here. So meaning, uh, Paul is taking each of these gifts and he is stretching them out to the most extreme degree to show that even if you were the absolute best example of what it meant to have this particular spiritual gift, then without love, none of that matters. It's all for nothing. And so uh, to those who think that, they say Paul is using the, the tongues of angels as a way of, of, of showing how extreme the example is. As I said for the last few weeks, I'll share with you what I think about that in a couple of weeks when we come to our topical sermon on tongues. But I think at the very least here, Paul is definitely being hyperbolic. Do you notice how in verse 2, he talks about the person who understands all mysteries and all knowledge and the one who has faith to remove mountains? Well, you see, neither of those things are actually physically possible, at least not by any human. Paul is trying to say that even if you are an exemplar of a certain spiritual gift, even if you are the very best at it in the world, then without love, 
You are nothing. Love lifts us up to where we belong. Like, like really. You see, next time you go out to Nycliffe and you walk on the jetty, think about this. If those stumps or uh, legs or whatever you call them were not lifting up the jetty up out of the water, what would be left of the jetty? Nothing. It would be swallowed up by the sea. It would, be, it would become nothing. And in the same way, without love, your spiritual gifts and your acts of service to the body of Christ and your sacrifices are all for nothing. Sadly, we've often emphasized very strongly in the church the need for us to serve one another. And that's, it's a good thing. But we have done that without properly reminding one another or emphasizing as strongly the necessity of love. I think Paul here, in the same way that he does in chapter 3, is warning the Corinthians that without love, you are perilously at risk of having no faith at all. You might look like you have these incredible and wonderful, wonderful spiritual gifts, but the reality is that to exercise them without love is to not exercise them at all. Just as Jesus says, in, as he warns in Matthew chapter 7, that performing miracles and prophesying in his name doesn't necessarily mean you know him. So too, exercising spiritual gifts without love is a warning sign. Sadly, there have been far too many high-profile examples of Christian leaders and artists who have shown that the gifts that they had been exercising were with no spiritual life, with no love for God or for others at all. To have faith that can remove mountains but not have love is to be nothing, Paul says. And to be a martyr and to surrender your body to the flames without love is to gain nothing. This is a sobering statement. You can be burned at the stake without the flame of God's love burning in your heart. And it would be for nothing. Some people who've died for the faith in the history of the church sadly did not do it because they loved God. But they did it because they wanted to be like others who were praised for it. These spiritual gifts... These virtuous and pious people who otherwise might do great things for God without love are nothing. Love lifts. Without it, spiritual gifts collapse into a heap of nothing. Without it, great acts of service and devotion to the Lord are swept away by the ocean. But how do we know? If we have love, when we seek to serve the body of Christ with the spiritual gifts God has given us. Well, we'll get to some specifics of that in the next section. But the first thing we can recognize is what Paul has, had, has said all throughout chapter 12. We are exercising them. Oh, are we exercising them for ourselves or are we exercising them for the common good? Do you speak, seek spiritual gifts 
for your own sake or for the sake of the building up of the body. We talked a bit about this last week. To exercise spiritual gifts selfishly would be to do so seeking some kind of personal validation or fulfillment or gain from them. Take Paul's example in verse 3. The one who gives of their possessions, the one who gives of their money, their time in love, does so without any expectation of of receiving something in return. You know, when giving is done in love, it's not given with an IOU. It's not surrendered with an expectation that, you know, that person show you some gratitude or at the very least appreciate the great sacrifice it was for you. No, the one who gives with love gives freely because they delight in giving. Because the Lord has given boundless, infinite treasures to them. They love the Lord and they love the body and they seek to show to others the same generosity that He has shown them in Christ. They know that God loves a cheerful giver and that it is more blessed to give than to receive. Love makes all the difference. Is love lifting you? Is it the thing that is holding up all your service and all your obedience and all your acts of sacrifice for others? Is that what holds up your spiritual gifts? Brothers and sisters, without love, we are nothing. But how do we know if we are loving? What does that look like? Well, that brings us to our second section. Love loves. Now, unless I define the second word in this heading, uh, then it's a pretty useless heading, right? It would just be a circular definition. What does love do? It loves. And what does that look like? It looks like love, right? Kids, it kind of sounds a little bit like, why can't I? Because. Why not? Because I said so. And why did you say so? Because. Right? Love loves. But thankfully, Paul has defined for us what it means for love to love, for love to act. You see, even in this section, in these verses, uh, in English, some of them are adjectives describing words of what love is. In the original Greek, they are actually all verbs. They are all doing words. And as I said earlier, love really is a verb. And not only is it a heart posture, it is active and dynamic. Let's have a read from verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. If you're wondering how... uh, You're going with obeying the second greatest commandment? If you're wondering what it looks like to exercise spiritual gifts out of love and not selfishness, spend some time meditating on this section. But if you did so only thinking about whether you measure up to this standard or not, then you are bound to feel extremely discouraged by the way you fail to love so often. 
So I'm going to walk us through this section and paint a picture of what love does and how love loves. A picture for us to meditate on and hold up against the picture of our own lives. But also, and I'm telling you at this point because I don't want you to despair. At the end, I'll come back around to show how God displays His love towards us in these ways and how this enables us to keep growing in love. Now, if you're a note taker, let me encourage you to just get the Bible references off me later if it's a bit too hard to write them all down. And for now, just consider what love is as God shows us in His Word. So firstly, love is patient. Patient. This is an interesting doing word because it doesn't actually feel like you're doing much when you're being patient, right? Kids, you might feel that pretty keenly when your parents tell you uh, yeah, they'll get you some ice cream or that we're going soon, uh, but then it also takes forever and they say, look, just be patient. When, when they tell you that, what are you usually doing? Just kind of waiting, right? Like standing, you know, it actually doesn't feel like you're doing anything. You see, sometimes when you're being patient, oftentimes, oftentimes it feels like you're just waiting around for people to get their act together. It doesn't really feel like much. And yet, that is loving. As Paul would say in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. That is something that all of us can immediately ask God for help with, again, towards one another as members of the body. Well, love is also kind. And if there was ever going to be an attribute of love that our culture holds onto in this list, but then rejects the others, it's probably going to be this one. Love is also kind. And as Christians, we ought not throw this baby out with the bathwater. You see, love is kind in its actions. Because God has shown us kindness, we in turn show that kindness to others. Paul expresses it this way in Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. There is the motivation. If you find it difficult to be kind, look at how God has been kind to you. It's a Christian. Be kind. Even when you have a truth that needs to be said that you know may be hard for your brother or sister to hear. Especially when you have something like that to say. If you can't say or do it kindly, then reconsider whether your motivation is love or not. Ask yourself, do I want to tell this person the truth because I want to keep them in line or prove myself to be right? Or is it because I love them? Let love be your guide. If your love for them is not the topmost motivator, then ask God to increase your love for them and increase your kindness. And I notice how these next few things that Paul mentions, they're actually things that love doesn't do. Love loves by not doing the following. Envy is the sinful desire to have or to take something that doesn't rightfully belong to you. James 4.2, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. 
The Bible describes God as being jealous of his people. But in that context, it is different to envy because we are rightfully his. A husband can rightly be jealous for the love of his wife and vice versa. So God is rightly jealous for the love of his people. But to envy is to seek and to desire something which is not rightfully yours. Well, to boast and to be arrogant are closely related. Boasting involves talking about how great you are and heaping praise on yourself. And to be arrogant is similar. The Greek word used to describe it has a sense of being puffed up, which is also sometimes how it's translated. Now, the image I get of, of arrogance is uh, of these, one of these Santa suits. Kids, you ever seen one of these? Yeah, you can buy them. They've got a built-in fan somewhere. It's probably in the back in the leg or something. And what it does is it just blows air into the suit so then it looks like you're really big. Well, if you imagine that as someone's ego, what they think of themselves, that's what arrogance is. It's just blowing air into yourself so you can think of how great you are. Being puffed up. Love doesn't do either arrogance or boasting. You notice how both of those things don't seem to have any direct impact on others? You know, boasting and being arrogant, they're not things you do to others. You don't kind of, you know, they're things you do to yourself. And yet, this is what the Corinthians were doing. They were boasting and being puffed up. And as we saw in chapter 12, that was hurting the body. Their boasting belittled others and showed their lack of love towards other members of the body. Do not, it does not boast, is not arrogant. It is also not rude. And rude is an interesting one. Uh, to be rude means to go against what is considered to be the right or decent order in society. You see, in our culture, we often just think of being rude as, uh, you know, burping loudly at dinner time uh, or, you know, ignoring somebody that you see in aisle 13 of Woolies and just walk and, and, and <laughs> snubbing them, as Kramer says. Sorry. That's, you know, we, we think of that as what rudeness is. And that is certainly what root, it means to be rude. But the meaning of the word is also talking about being decent. It means doing what is expected, what, doing what is the norm in society, what is the right thing to do. I don't know if you remember the song Rude by the one-hit wonder band Magic. Does anyone know that? Do you know that song? Why you gotta be so rude? You know that? Yeah, that one. It's about a guy who falls in love with a girl... And then this girl's dad refuses to give them his blessing for their marriage. And so uh, the chorus is him saying, well, you know, you're, you're so rude for denying us that blessing. As I stopped to think about the lyrics this week, I came to realize, hey, wait a second. It's not the dad who's rude. It's actually the guy who's being, the guy who's singing is the one who's rude. You know, he's he's... You know, he's, he's talking about how he's just going to marry this girl anyway against her father's wishes. Surely if anybody is being rude and doing something indecent, it's him. Well, of course, I'm not the only person to have realized this, and uh, you can find many ranty articles and memes all about how that's the case. I don't know if the writers meant that irony or not, but it illustrates the point. 
Love is not only polite, it is also decent. Which is why Christians ought to care about how they conduct themselves and with not just each other, but also in the public square. I don't know if you saw this week, but Australian census, resu- census results came in revealing an increasing number of people identifying as non-religious. And professing Christians now represent less than 50% of the population. My assumption is that that's just going to increasingly continue. And so because of that, as Christians, our not-rudeness ought to stand out more and more. As Jesus said in Matthew 5.16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, that doesn't mean bending to the point of doing the wrong thing, which we'll see shortly. It might be rude, for example, to change the subject from a conversation that is all about gossip or, or perhaps telling a friend that you would rather not engage in it, even though that would be considered rude to them. Even though they're thinking, you know, come on, it's the norm. Everybody does it. And nobody likes Dennis in accounting. Well, when doing what society expects means disobeying God, love obeys God. But notice that this doesn't mean trying to intentionally be rude. You see, even in that scenario, you can, you can in, be way ruder than you need to be in trying to excuse yourself from that conversation, in trying to avoid gossiping. You can still love in seeking to be decent even as you obey God rather than people. Now, here is uh, one that we can easily relate to, I think. It does not insi- love does not insist on its own way. Another way of putting that is that it is not self-serving. This is perhaps one of the hardest for us, given how self-serving sin is. And Paul has already talked about this in chapter 10 of his letter, not seeking our own good, but the good of our neighbors. And this encapsulates the essence of love, doesn't it? This whole list in 1 Corinthians 13, it radiates selflessness. The actions of love show a concern and a priority for others and for their good that outweighs a concern and a priority for ourselves. That is seen especially in these next two verbs of love. Have a look at those in verse 5. It is not irritable or resentful. It is not irritable. Now, to be irritable is to be easily annoyed, to be easily provoked or set off. Now, think about this for a second. What are the things that make us easily irritable? More often than not, they're all the things that are about not getting our own way. They're all the things that are not, that are all about not you know what I'm saying more often than not they're about the things about the times when we do not get what we want when someone doesn't reply to our messages the way that we want them to or perhaps in the time frame that we want them to when we tell our kids an instruction for the third time and they still haven't moved out of their seat 
When an airline loses my suitcase and then instead of delivering it to my door, makes me go to the airport to pick it up and pay for parking and then have me go through this long, drawn-out process just to claim some kind of compensation. That's not a real example, I promise. Not. Love is not irritable. In many ways, this is the other side of being patient. To grow in patience is to become less easily irritated. Well, love is also not resentful. Literally, Paul says to count wrongdoings, or as the NIV puts it, it keeps no record of wrongs. This is one of those rare occurrences where the NIV is actually more literal than this ESV. It keeps no record of wrongs, not resentful. Commentator David Garland puts it like this. On the one hand, keeping tabs on wrongs done done to us presumes that we are the ones who get to repay the wrongs. Love absorbs evil without calculating how to retaliate. On the other hand, keeping count of wrongs allows us to take advantage of another's guilt. When love forgives, it does not keep a ledger of wrongs in its back pocket. Kids, you remember that blown up Santa on screen? And we hear about how Santa keeps a list of who's done right and who's done wrong, who's been naughty and who's nice. Santa is not Jesus. He also does not reflect God as he does, does that. Love does not hold on to offenses received. When we love, we don't continue to come, we, we don't continue to come back to bringing up the things that, that people have offended us with. We do not stew over them. We do not dwell over other people's sins and continue to hold out against them. Love keeps no record of wrongs. And finally, before we get into Paul's for alls, two interesting love verbs, perhaps more connected than we might realize. I don't know about you, but I often feel like I am conditioned by our world to think about what is true and what is right as being things that don't necessarily overlap. So, for example, science can tell us what is true about lots of things in the universe, but it doesn't tell us whether those things are right or wrong. Math doesn't get you morals, it's just math. And while that's true in some ways, the Bible doesn't separate those things so easily. When Paul says, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, well, what would you expect him to say after that if you knew he was giving the other side of that equation? You'd expect him to say, but rejoices at right doing, right? Or rejoices in righteousness, rejoices in what is right. But no, he says, it rejoices with the truth. Truth and righteousness go hand in hand. And this isn't the only time Paul does this. In Romans 2 verse 8, he does the same thing. Those who do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness. So if you want to love well, rejoice in what is right. And if you want to know what is right, Know what is true. And the same is true of the opposites of those things. Do not rejoice in falsehoods, 
Don't rejoice in lies and rejoice in what is right. A great example of this was given to us last week. Many Christians across the world celebrating the overturning of Roe v. Wade, which means that abortion is no longer considered a right in the United States. Christians rejoiced in this good work, rightly so, in the evils that it will likely restrain and the many unborn lives that it will save. Love rejoices in what is right. But as the world continues to react to that in disapproval and in anger, our very own Prime Minister expressed his disapproval of the Supreme Court's decision. It's important to recognize that God keeps calling us to love our neighbors. And that will involve everything else on this list. Not just rejoicing in truth and righteousness. We love by showing patience and kindness with those who hate God's truth, with those who rejoice in evil. We love by not boasting or being arrogant in this victory of justice. You see, love is not one-dimensional. And that's why the Christian can both rejoice in this right deed and still show kindness to their neighbor. Show patience. Be willing to hear. Even as church buildings are vandalized and graffitied all across the United States, I'll be sharing uh, in our church's weekly email this week a wonderful story about how one church has responded after they were targeted by a group that, that vandalized and graffitied their building. If you're not in our church's email, please feel free to come and see me if you'd like to um, get that. Love loves. And it continues to love in ways that confound the world. But what does verse 7 mean? Let's read. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. The first thing to say is that Paul is clearly again making a point here using some hyperbole in his use of the word all. It seems like uh, many wrestle with what it means to believe all things. After all, a Christian, by definition, cannot believe all things. You know, we believe that Jesus is the only way, truth, and life, which necessarily excludes other things. But if you think about the other verbs, well, they would also be impossible if you literally applied them to all things, right? Nobody, no one person can bear or can hope or can endure all the things that are to be born or hoped or endured in the universe. No, Paul's point is that love shows certain characteristics that are seen in its overall nature, in its overall character, Love shows itself when we bear with one another, when we endure in love with one another, when we believe and when we hope, even in the midst of difficult and seemingly hopeless and unbelievable, impossible circumstances. There is an optimism in love that doesn't so easily give up on our brothers and sisters in Christ or on our neighbors. That is what Paul is getting at as he says that 
Love bears, believes, hopes, and endures all things. As John Calvin put it, as we are naturally spiteful, we are consequently suspicious too and take almost everything amiss, amiss meaning wrongly. Love, on the other hand, calls us back to kindness so that we think favorably and candidly of our neighbors. So there it is. The central element of our faith, of what it means to know and follow Jesus, given some very clear definition by the Apostle Paul in just four verses. Does that excite and inspire you to increase in love? Or do you find yourself weighed down by how badly you fail in those areas? Well, if you find yourself more in that latter category, turn to the one, the one who shows you the very love that we aspire to show to our fellow members of the body and to our neighbors. You see, the beauty of love is that God, God himself is love. As John reminds us in his first letter. And because God is love, he shows us what perfect love looks like. And not only does he show it, he shows it towards us. Now this is, the, after all, the way of the gospel. As John would say a few verses later of chapter 4, we love because he first loved us. The only reason we can, the only reason we can aspire to love is because he has first loved us. We love not because we are trying to earn God's love. We love because we already have received His love. And so if you want to grow in loving others, then brothers and sisters, look at how God has poured out His great love on you. Let me give you some examples of how He's loved you, the way Paul describes in these verses. You see, God is patient towards us. We see this so many times in the Old Testament and most clearly in Exodus 34, 6, when God tells us that he is slow to anger. It is a very part of his nature. And he demonstrates that over and over again to the Israelites, even as they keep turning away from him. And Paul and Peter reminds us that he is still patient today, even to those who are not yet his people, desiring that they would come to him that they would reach repentance and not perish. And Peter, of all the disciples, probably had a keen sense of the Lord's patience. You think about the amount of times that he put his foot in his mouth. And not only that, denied the Lord Jesus three times at the time when he needed him the most. Yet God did not stop loving him. Nor did he stop working in him by his Holy Spirit. Romans 2, even though it was directed at those who were being hypocritical and taking advantage of God's patience and kindness, it nonetheless states so clearly that God has an abundance of kindness and forbearance and patience that he shows us. You see, the whole purpose of that, again, which Peter echoes, is to lead us to repentance which is why we want to ensure that we keep turning to Him. Even as we fail to love, even as we sin. 
Because brothers and sisters, if that is you, if you are struggling with that, the weight of that, the weight of your shortcomings and failings, be assured this morning that when you repent, He has riches of kindness and forbearance. He loves you with patience and kindness. And of course, God does not keep a record of wrongs committed against him for those who are in Christ Jesus. For every person who turns away from their sin and who puts their trust in Christ, God chooses not to count their sin against them. As Paul would say in Romans 4, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Quoting the Psalms. God's love has been supremely displayed in Jesus. The one who lived a perfect life, the one who obeyed perfectly and who died on a Roman cross in our place so that the penalty of our sin might be taken on by him and so that we might receive through faith his righteousness and pardon for our sins. In this way, God is both just and the justifier If you're here this morning and you are yet to turn to Christ, let me invite you to know this great God who greatly loves by turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus today. He is patient and kind. A person who loves the way Paul describes for us in this chapter is one who does so because they've been so greatly loved by God. Take heart, brothers and sisters, as he has and as he continues to pour out his love on you, so he is also increasing with you, within you, a love for others. After all, God is love. The love that we show to our brothers and sisters in Christ, the love that we show to our neighbors is love that comes from, looks like, and does the same as the one who is love. Which is why it's no surprise that love will still be there in eternity. And that brings us to our final section. Love lasts. Love lasts. Kids, I don't know. I don't really watch TV these days. <clears throat> and I don't know if they still have it. But you know, do you know the Energizer Bunny? No, yeah. They must have stopped that campaign a while ago, right? But it, you, you guys know what I'm talking about? Old, old people? Yep. Good. The Energizer Bunny, he's, he's a bunny who like, is powered by an Energizer battery. And he just lasts and lasts and lasts. But the funny thing is, I mean, he eventually runs out of battery, right? And so when I say love lasts, when Paul says love does not end, he's not just talking about an energizer kind of lasting. He's talking about a love that lasts forever, that goes on for eternity, billions and billions and billions of years into the future. And I'm not talking about the soppy kind of love lasts forever, love that, you know, singers and scriptwriters and poets like to talk about. No, we are talking about a reality, a concrete truth. Love lasts forever because God lasts forever. 
And God is love. Let's read from verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Love never ends. It never ends. Paul now shows another reason why this is the most excellent way. You see, spiritual gifts, they have a shelf life. They run on energizer batteries. Prophecies, tongues, knowledge, they will all pass away. And when Paul uses the word for pass away, especially in 1 Corinthians, most often he's referring to things that finish in this age that have an end point when that comes to a close. You see, his contrast here between the partial and the perfect is between this age and the age to come. Like we saw at the end of the book of Daniel, there are two parts to the human timeline, this age and the age that comes on the other side of Jesus returning. The kingdom of the age to come has begun with the coming of Christ. And one day he will soon come again to bring it completely. You see, we live in the partial, and soon the perfect will be here. The puzzle pieces are out, and some are even connected, but the whole picture hasn't yet come into view. And so Paul names this reality in verses 8 to 10, and then he gives us the illustrations of childhood and adulthood and that of a mirror compared to being face to face. Some people try to say that when Paul says here that uh, prophecy in tongues will cease, that that's evidence of the fact that tongues have ceased today. But the context makes it quite clear that he's talking about ceasing in the age to come. Now, it very well may be that prophecy and tongues have already ceased, but that's not the point of these verses. Paul's point is that when Jesus returns and the age of new creation begins, not only will tongues and prophecies cease, but so will knowledge and so will all other spiritual gifts. There will no longer be a need for them. Then Now we have them, but then they will not be required. And so when Paul compares these two ages to the difference between childhood and adulthood, he's showing how they are two completely different ages and stages. One of the things that my eldest daughter, uh, Eden, lately has been saying to me over the last couple of weeks is, Dad, you're a genius. She's been so impressed at certain things that that I know and that I can do that she she just thinks, man, this guy must be off the charts. Now, I, you know, when she's done that, I've, I've thanked her for her encouragement. And I've had to remind her that that is certainly not true. But because there is such a great difference between childhood and adulthood, sometimes it can be amazing to kids to, to consider all the things that adults know and things that they are able to do. 
Now, that's, that's not to suggest, Paul is not suggesting here that children are inferior. Far, far from it. Jesus himself said to let the children come to him that in order, and that in order to enter the kingdom of God, a person must receive it like a child. That's not what Paul is, he's not trying to suggest that children are inferior. He is simply talking about the fact that they belong to different ages and stages, like the partial and the perfect. That's the point of the illustration. And as for the mirrors, Corinth was actually well known for its mirrors. They were made of bronze or silver, and they weren't like the mirrors that we have today. So that, the mirrors that we have give quite an accurate reflection of reality, which is you know, often depressing for me. But back then in Corinth, they were less clear, and they were even a little bit dim. The knowledge we have now is like seeing into that kind of mirror. You get a partial view, a partial accuracy of reality. But when the perfect comes, when Jesus returns, we will see him face to face. And what we catch only a dim reflection of in the present will in eternity be like full HD, infinite K resolution. All the spiritual gifts that God has given us today for our building up, for our increasing in knowledge and in love and in faith of Him, they will no longer be required because the real thing will be right in front of us. Think about it like this. Even if you had an extremely high-resolution video call, even if you had the most high-res hologram technology that hasn't even been invented yet, or a virtual reality meeting with a loved one that just feels like you're actually there, nothing compares to with actually being in the same room, with giving your, your loved ones a hug, with seeing them face to face. For Paul's Jewish listeners and for those who would have been familiar with the Old Testament, this image of seeing God face to face was a striking one. One of the reasons Moses was considered such a great prophet is because of how God revealed himself to him and how he interacted with him. Exodus 33:11 tells us that the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. That kind of incredible relationship with God where we not only know him in faith will be the reality of our eyes and our bodies when the perfect comes. We will be in His presence, completely redeemed, our whole selves finally and fully glorified, and we will be face to face with God in a way that surpasses even Moses. The full and complete knowledge with which God knows us currently will be in some measure mirrored in our knowledge of Him. You see, God fully knows us today, of course, he's God. And when the perfect comes, when Jesus returns, the hazy filter will be removed from our mind's eye. And in some analogous way, our knowledge of him will be completed and perfected. Brothers and sisters, do we seek to serve God and to serve the body of Christ because it's an obligation or because it brings us satisfaction or because it gives us reason to boast? Or is it out of love for God and for the members of the body that he has placed in our lives? 
your spiritual gifts and your acts of service and sacrifice to the body, they have an expiry date. But your love for them does not. Did you know that you are making eternal investments of love when you love your brothers and sisters today? I mean, if you're the investing type, that, like that's, you can't beat that. That, that. That's a return that's way better than you'll get anywhere else. That love that you invest into your brothers and sisters today is not going to disappear or burn up when the perfect comes. As Jonathan Edwards preached, heaven is a world of love. So brothers and sisters, as you strive to love well, as you strive to increase in love, empowered by God's love and by His Spirit, be encouraged and uplifted by the fact that this is not just a temporary task, nor is it a task that affects only this temporary life. Love never ends. The love you show now will go on into eternity. Paul finishes a little surprisingly, given everything he said. And I'd love to say more about this verse, but I'll keep it brief. Let's read verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. In Paul's other letters, we sometimes see these three together, which means it was probably a common triad that Paul would put together, faith, hope, and love. And so it's likely that Paul introduces them here at this point to show that all three continue on into eternity, even if the nature of them looks very different. Faith will be assured and not contain even a shred of doubt. And hope will be of a kind that is perfectly certain of the future. And yet the greatest of them, as has been made so evidently clear, is love. Love lifts, love lasts. Sorry, love loves and love lasts. Brothers and sisters, as you love today, you have already begun what you will be doing for eternity. You've gotten a head start on what will make up a significant portion of your existence for the next 70 billion years and beyond. Let that fill your love sails and spur you on to reflect our God, who is himself love. Love Him with everything that is within you, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And love the members of Christ's body that God has placed around you, even as you serve them with spiritual gifts that will one day pass away. Godly love, love that comes from Him and that is like Him, is greatest. And may that be true of our lives. Let's pray. Our God who is love, 
how wondrous, how awesome, how incredible you are. How great is your love. Father, as we've seen this morning, what your love is like and what love ought to look like in our own lives. May you lift up our eyes to see your great love for us. May we, in turn, love you, love our neighbours, love one another. May your spirit continue to do that in us individually and in us as the body of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.